another episode uh six episode and five days i believe now we're at uh uh this episode i think um might actually end up being more than one uh we'll see how it goes it's uh talking about my political bias uh just because there's so many of them might uh lead to uh so many facets of my bias that might lead to uh uh having to extend this episode but uh we'll see i think like for the most part there are two main points i wanted to hit on and then uh we'll uh if we have time uh we might extend that right into a longer episode or another episode entirely uh first one of course i think big formative thing in my life in general was uh and of course when i talk about bias i don't want to talk about the boring like oh he's left he's right that kind of th- no just like things that actually impact color uh my thinking on politics uh and sticking to foreign policy for the most part now um first part is uh being born in somalia but like leaving the country because of civil war before before i could remember i was uh two uh two and a half when we left the country three years old uh when we came to canada um and I do it did have some knowledge of um, the United States intervention in the country, the international intervention, uh, humanitarian intervention um, in the country um, in two ways. I knew about it as having been a, a factor in potentially saving my life, not definitely not the main reason, but the main reason would have been my mom's personal heroism and like getting me out of there but it, it did help to have um like red cross clinics and uh aid stations guarded by uh international peacekeeping forces right uh did help to have um that international intervention so when i was a kid focused mostly on that i had developed this vague notion of america's role in the world as being uh, the only country with the ability, um, and if there's some, of course, a, a degree of validity to this still, but that since America was the only country with the ability to, uh, respond to humanitarian crisis, war zones, conflicts, civil wars, immediately anywhere around the world in a way that could mitigate the suffering of the, uh, civilian population that America had an obligation to lead the uh, world in humanitarian, uh, yeah, engagement throughout the world, uh, yeah, internationally, right? Um, whether or not it was multilateral, too, uh, that's what I would have believed. Uh, it's, um, I, I feel like I could excuse myself for holding these somewhat childish uh, foreign policy views then because I was a child. I mean, this was maybe from when I could think until age 10, 11, uh, I might have thought these things. And I, I think the reason I probably had, the only reason I had political views at that time was just because politics was something that was uh, heavily discussed in my family. Like my dad uh, had worked in the Somali government before its fall. Uh, he was studying in uh, the United States at the time of the Civil War to get his, like, yeah, he finished his degrees in economics and hoping, of course, to get like a higher up job in the Somali government and uh, had dreams of 
being a high roller or an influential person in uh, Somalia. So he was always interested in Somalia, uh, Somalia, regional Africa and politics and uh, Middle Eastern politics and, uh, and international politics too. Um, had these strong views, even though the opportunity to uh, work in the government was uh, cut off because of the civil war. He always thought of it as a temporary thing too, something that he would be able to go back to uh, once some of the civil war uh, ended. Uh, I guess he didn't. Uh, yeah, he had no way of predicting it would last longer than his his life, right? Uh, but. Um, he always talked about it a lot as a kid uh, to uh, to us in, in our household. So, as a kid, my takeaway having to think about this was, you know, even though there was a healthy deal of anti-American coming from my dad, it was like, no, this country, you know, does have a role, an important role. I would, uh, um, it occurs to me now, having thought about it, what <clears throat> uh, that my political ideology as a kid. Uh, my interventionist uh, foreign policy as as a kid is neoconservatism. I accidentally stumbled upon the same views as like Paul Wolfowitz and like all these folks, uh, Don Rumsfeld, the Center for uh, like a, a New American Century that uh, America has the uh, moral obligation to export like liberty, uh, peace, and security to uh, to the world. Um, yeah, it's uh, nonsense like that. Um, important thing, uh, but it was important, uh, to see the, um, that ideology actually, uh, at work because that's when I, uh, began to be revolted by it, uh, after like 9-11, having to like watch 9-11. I, I mentioned in an earlier episode that, um, well, when I was talking about the death threat that um, my dad had talked about uh, terrorism a lot, uh, kind of inoculated us from that kind of jihadi rhetoric, uh, but also like kind of sparked an interest <clears throat> in this these kind of groups, um, primed us to think about them before they took the center stage, and also like seeing um, it was kind of shocking to me. Uh, that, the whole thing was a whole series of few years was pretty jarring because like I was able to uh, be introduced to uh, the concept of radical jihad, the jihads jihadis at a very young age, like eight, nine in a way that like I was able to manage it, like understand it, um, contextualize it just because my dad was able to sit down and talk to me about that. But seeing like the entire world, introduced to it at the same time and react to it in a more or less mature manner right in 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 frighteningly insane manner uh was shocking to me and that was very formative and to see people who espoused some of the same rhetoric that i would have agreed with using it to justify what seemed to be like racist wars and like short-sighted myopic wars uh was terrifying right and it really made me rethink a lot of the blind, I think, pro-Americanism that I had before. Uh, because even if we do think of um, these humanitarian interventions as something, like if we think about them in the abstract as occurring with like perfect moral justification 
uh, limited scope and with countries and militaries that are perfectly capable of, uh, of executing these missions, then you, you can think, yeah, then there's it's a strong argument. But you have to do it, like Donald Rumsfeld said, with the army that you have and the army that we, the leadership that we have. And uh, once I realized that you can't really trust the American government uh, to, uh, you know, conduct a large scale <laughs> military operation in a country uh, at, for the betterment of anybody except for the military contractors uh, that reap profits from it. Right. Uh, it was. And when I, I don't say that they do that explicitly for that, uh, their benefit, I'm saying that they end up being the only ones who do benefit from it. Right. Um, that they're and for natural reasons too. Like uh, there, uh, as I grew up, I placed more importance on stories that I had neglected, but had heard about. Uh, like uh, when I was a kid, I had heard about atrocities that uh, foreign governments committed in Somalia, like uh, the Canadian military. Uh, there was one video. Uh, or some Canadian soldiers with either one or two, forget off the top of my head, but we're doing gruesome thing. I don't even want to think about it. Uh, but there was an important, uh, I just kind of pushed that to Saya as a kid, as I'm kind of doing right now, uh, to go through the podcast. Um, but it was, it became clear to me <clears throat> watching Abu Ghraib, for example, um, and things like that. Uh, even if learning about things that happened in Vietnam, like the My Lai Massacre, uh, that whether or not um, the politicians espouse noble rhetoric, uh, there's going to, uh, just by placing people in, uh, yes, heavily armed soldiers in a foreign country, you shift the dynamic. Yeah, you create more racism, you create more brutality within them, and there's a a parallel that you dynamic that you create at home where it's somewhat in solidarity with the soldiers where they have hatred for the people that they believe that they're at war with whether or not the government says like George Bush's government did that we're not at war with the people we're at war with certain elements or we're at war with their government and we want the people to be free uh this both the cases for Afghanistan and Iraq didn't really matter there was just an increase in uh xenophobia racism islamophobia right there it was so bad that people were taking um sikhs uh six out of uh temples and uh just because they had turbans right uh they would they would uh uh, confuse them for muslims and attack them it it was how bad it was so all these ideals i had kind of just it was a huge period of disillusionment for me just kind of smashed up against the uh, the rocks um and i had to rethink i still did i still do agree that there is a role for international uh, humanitarian intervention there is still an obligation of course uh but i think as much of this needs to be done uh by monitoring and advocating for uh, human rights well before uh, the regimes collapse, right? And uh, we need to have much stronger networks uh, so that we can, yeah, negotiate, like manage these situations, dynamics all throughout the world, not only care, not just caring about countries once the civil war begins. 
as just monitoring and mitigating the chances of the civil wars happening should be the focus. And if they do occur, I still think that there is um, um, role <clears throat> that foreign militaries can play in evacuation and security of humanitarian, like refugee camps in neighboring countries where they're invited, right? So let's say, um, if just using the example of Somalia, if like Kenya invites the United Nations to send peacekeeping soldiers because they're overwhelmed by the security situation in the refugee camps on the border. Um, and let's say there's attacks occurring from let's oh, uh, one uh, group on the uh, refugees, right? which often happens is to steal resources, which that's exactly what happened in 1993. Then they could send them, but it would be better to send them to the country where she invited you, right? Uh, um, just to minimize, yeah. You know, because what happens is like, um, I, and it happens in uh, the United uh, United States uh, involvement in uh, Somalia is as soon as their soldiers begin to die, um, uh, there's uh, a, either a shift towards uh, like a, the the op, the operation shifts to much more combative uh, role, or they just lose interest and leave altogether, depending on the type of politician and type of party that you have, right? The Republicans are much more likely, it seems, to uh, keep on going in a battle just to avenge uh, the fallen, right? Uh, they uh, believe that they don't believe in the cutting and running. And, like, they don't, they talk about <clears throat> if ending battles, meaning like uh, soldiers having died in vain. It's like the kind of weird rhetoric that is like, always made me kind of, weirded out by the poem like in flanders fields right because like the it, the poem itself it's first two stanzas the first two first two bits it's uh okay they're n nice imagery it's, it's all well and good but at the end like he starts going on about you know take up our quarrel with the foe to you from dying hands we throw the torch be yours to hold it high and if i think he goes like if you break faith with us who die we shall not rest though we lie in Flanders fields, I think. Uh, but yeah, I saying if you like end a war after somebody dies in it, then uh, it's effectively betraying the, the dead. Or if uh, you have Bill Clinton in there, it's like, yeah, I don't want uh, more American deaths on my... Um, yeah, I don't want to deal with this, right? I have, a, I have other things to worry about. I'm just sending my troops out. Uh, leaving the country to like a quarter century of civil war. So what often happens too is uh, in, the, in the instance of Vietnam, you see it's clear whether or not you think America should have been involved or not, them involving themselves, amplifying the war and then leaving probably worsened <laughs> the situation for the South Vietnamese. And then if they had just left, right, it just increases the animosity it minimizes any chance of reconciliation uh, just because, uh, right, of uh, the involvement. Uh, that often happens. Um, and it's, yeah, so I I believe, like, any missions inside the country, like a war zone, should be just targeted evacuation missions only. Uh, and uh, they should be planned out such that like the chance of any oppos opposition force uh 
encountering the humanitarian uh, relievers is minimized, um, right? Uh, that's what it should be. Uh, and the bulk of the evacuations should be done before the war even begins, uh, when the situation becomes clear to uh, our diplomats that uh, it's untenable. And we should have the capacity to perform these uh, and they, we do have bodies which can can function in this way, like the UNHCR, uh, UNHNO, UNHO, uh, whatever. Um, the organizing body uh, that organizes our humanitarian relief efforts. Um, they these bodies can be used to uh, organize the evacuation missions and like monitor. Uh, the situation you have organizations like human rights watch already uh, raising alarms uh about atrocities occurring uh and so if we pay much more attention to these warning signs uh we can respond in uh ways that aren't as yeah with we'll have we won't be in these horrible no-win situations uh that we often find ourselves in right uh i think this is uh, the need for a humanitarian, uh, I, as I grew up, I began to think of the need for a humanitarian uh, intervention as like a failure of a foreign policy, not as like, it's not something that should be like a hallmark of somebody's foreign policy. I think you should go a little bit further than that. I'm glad I did. Uh, but it's clear still that like a lot of people have not, right? Like the neoconservative movement is alive and well. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I do, I'm sh still shocked about it because like I, I, I noticed that they are the only people who seem to have the same degree of interest in foreign policy, uh, like the machinations, tiny things, uh, uh, and the wars. Yeah. That, that like I do, it's like, there's no left blogs that are, are anywhere close to the give you them anywhere close to the amount of detail as you would get uh, from something like the Institute of Study of War, which is like a neoconservative think tank. Um, and I go to them, I, it puts me in a position where I have to rely on some conservative sources uh, just for information, raw information, uh, because they're the only ones doing any reporting on the issue, right? And I have to kind of we parse the ideology from the information, right? I would just try to remove it. And uh, because there are these organizations like the Institute of the Study of War are purely propagandistic. That's why they exist. They don't hide that, right? They exist to influence people's foreign policy views, not just the general public, but uh, primarily... Uh, lawmakers and military officials, right? Uh, they provide these people with data and analysis, uh, and that analysis tends to be very hawkish neoconservative analysis, right? Um, and um, it's just kind of it's it's shocking to me because I I do see some of the childish i guess that's the only word i can use childish uh views that i would have held when i was eight nine or ten if i had to 
think about these things, or if I had not matured emotionally at all, uh, but uh, and matured intellectually, then I probably would have just been a neoconservative. It seems like this is what happened with them. Uh, and some of this, I think, is um, going back to the first episode, uh, once again, talking about the death threat. I did say that I understood the mindset a bit um, because... And after the death threat, that it was might have been the second moment in my life where I had almost like a parallels with the neoconservatives and thought because after <clears throat> having the death threat, I was much more uh, aggressive in what steps I thought the government should take to combat terrorism and the terrorist threat. Uh, for like two weeks, um, <laughs> I was terrified. I was like, um, that two weeks in which I heavily believed in the surveillance state, not necessarily a, a neoconservative uh, view, but um, something that is like a Bush administration view, something like is also held by many of these uh, neoconservatives, right? Neoconservatism dominates their foreign policy, but many of these people, you speak to them, and they will have uh, views about the powers of the executive, which extend to surveillance at home. And um, and I um, was right there with them for the for the most part. Uh, I for those two weeks, I believed in uh, heavy surveillance. I I thought uh, like the government should have the ability, for example, to look up, like put uh, certain keywords, like my name, for example, my address my phone number, anything, uh, personal information, even so far as a picture, an image of me, and be able to scan, even if, they, if it was possible, like if this capacity existed, to be able to filter every text message, email, correspondence uh, to for these uh, keywords. Just like uh, open monitoring of everybody's communication to save my life, yes, I felt like that, that would be a, a reasonable step to take, <laughs> right? And of course, it wasn't necessary to save my life, um, as I could tell, because I'm <clears throat> still alive, and uh, the government definitely did not. Uh, of course, I wouldn't be privy to the government's steps. I highly doubt they took that step uh, to save me. Um, so I'm just going to assume that they didn't, uh, and that wasn't necessary. But I was there. I was uh, that far, and that is pretty much the United States prison uh, program, right? Wide scale, warrantless wiretapping, collection of uh, data, uh, long term attempts to store data, not just metadata, but actual data, right? Uh, so who knows? It seemed like there were people aspiring to the type of ability that I thought they should have. And uh, for me, it was uh, because of the direct fear of the. Uh, the death threat but i think the combination of 9-11 and uh a nationalist uh education militaristic upbringing which a lot of uh americans have uh right especially in red states i feel like that could uh i feel like that could easily lead to a parallel psychological dynamic where uh they have similar aggressive like i discussed uh how in the death or episode i talked about uh episode one for you 
want to listen to it. I keep on mentioning it, but uh, if if the it, it was clear to me that like my f- response to the fear was like blanket rage uh, and paranoia, right? It wasn't like it was. I guess it was. It wasn't in the classical the the way I always thought of a uh, I would react to. Fear, right? You think of fear as just anxiety, right? You hear a rustling, you're like, uh, but in actuality, like the one I was at my most fearful, uh, psychologically, I responded to that by wanting to murder, <laughs> not personally, but like wishing the death of these people that uh, created this threat, right? And yeah, you, you, I could see why there were so many people who like signed up for the military after 9 11. I can see why there was uh, so much brutality uh, uh, towards the civilian populations, even um, by some of the people, uh, some of the soldiers, right? Like Chris Kyle, right? this American sniper, we hear about him shooting people uh, because uh, they don't. There's no distinction uh, that this kind of mindset would make between um, the civilian population and the uh, terrorist population because as i mentioned in this mindset is comes from a refusal to think right uh you you don't want to you're afraid of uh uh thinking about these people in any depth just because of uh the terror and the fear which which uh, thinking about them brings up uh, because you eventually think about them, their capacity to kill you, right? That's all that dominates. And you should begin daydreaming about the many ways in which you can die or the many ways in which people you care about dying. You think about other possible attacks and uh, you focus on preventing them by killing them, right? You just that's it. You're just like finding these people and preventing all these nightmare scenarios from occurring. Uh, I began to, yeah, the death threat helped realize that that was central to the the uh, war mindset too, right? Um, so, it be, yeah, it, it was clear, more clear that uh, whether or not you think of these uh, military engagements as being justifiable, it's 100% clear that uh, you shouldn't engage in them whatsoever uh, because uh, they have a warping impact and uh, do not end off as well in practice as they do in the minds of the military planners, right? Uh, we thought going to Iraq war that we'd be greeted as liberators ended up just wrecking the country further than it already was, right? Um, so an- another thing, a huge thing, is uh the because it's distrust too of the foreign policy apparatus uh which is kind of tricky uh thing to navigate uh because as i mentioned keep on mentioning the hallmark of a conspiracy theorist mindset is a rabid distrust of authority and it puts you in a position where you have to speculate as to what um because you reject the official story and then you're like, okay, what actually happening? And then you try to fill in the gaps. Thankfully, I think because of uh, 
I because I studied science growing up, uh, I wasn't like a uh, studied formally studied politics or history or something like that. Uh, I think I'm much more comfortable with uh, degrees living with just a degree of uncertainty than most people who analyze politics. Uh, so that even if I do disbelieve the official story, it doesn't necessarily mean I have to speculate. It just I monitor it and look for more information and uh, wait until I have enough information to actually come up with a valid theory. Uh, until then, I just know what I don't believe. That's it. Very simple, right? Like, I know I don't believe that went into uh, the Iraq war for WMD, uh, right? I don't believe i think that was might have been just a bit of a justification uh i don't i don't believe the official story i don't have enough information though to come up with an alternative so i kind of shy away from conspiratorial explanations like oh they did it to get the oil or he did it because he wanted to avenge his dad or stuff like that because it's easier for a conservative to hit on those but the reason it would be is because those aren't based on anything. Those are just wanted speculation on my part, uh, right? And uh, sometimes, oftentimes, uh, conspiracy theorists. So the trick, the problem, is that um, there there's a willingness to believe any counter narrative to the government. So if even if you hear one guy, one crank on the internet with a theory like Alex, Alex Jones supporters, it's like okay, it's one thing not to trust the government, but you believe him. Right? What the fuck? Right? So there's just a credulity that um, the conspiracy theory mindset kind of puts you in, uh, kind of creates. Uh, so I am I think that's one good kind of political bias almost. Uh, my part is that scientific bias where I just like, nah, I'm not, I'm going to withhold judgment on, on these issues. And the reason it's much more important to have this uh, now is uh, because in a Donald Trump presidency, it's perfectly reasonable to distrust everything that comes from any federal government apparatus, right? Uh, any statement, uh, anything that happens, uh, even the tr uh, things that seem relatively benign, it's quite reasonable for people to question the justifications of, of them, right? And to question what Trump was doing, meaning, right? You see that happening with a lot of people. It's just turned people into like uh, conspiracy theorists, and uh, a lot of them, after four years, have just turned into like their brains are fried. It's like you look at like uh, the resistance Twitter. A lot of people are just nut jobs now. I don't know if they always have been, but like it's kind of become clear. I think with the the Tara Reid story, where people are saying like. It's like a woman who's talking, complained about things in 1993, did so to coordinate with like a New York real estate developer and like a local uh, St. Petersburg uh, municipal official, like a deputy uh, mayor or mayoral advisor. Uh, 1993, they all come up with this plan that 27 years later, uh, like she's she's gonna tell Pete, her mom and her brothers and her neighbors and her friend uh, about this stuff, so, uh, this made up story, so that twenty seven years later she can help Putin help Donald Trump get reelected against Joe Biden. This is like people genuinely like I'm, I'm they don't phrase it in the way I did, but people believe that without they're just because they yeah they're just 
they hate Donald Trump at all so much. They distrust anything that they see as possibly being beneficial to Donald Trump. And believe uh, Vladimir Putin is, uh, you know, creating disinformation, which he is. And they suspect everything to be disinformation raised by Vladimir Putin. And you can see the impacts of that, right? It just kind of makes people nuts. So if these people were, you know, able to just say, hey, you know, I don't know about this terror read thing. I'm just going to withhold judgment. Um, they'd probably be in a healthier psychological position and closer to the truth. But, uh, like, have uh, be able to post things that are less embarrassing. But, unfortunately, they don't. Uh, so that's the last one. It's not only a foreign policy thing. It just kind of pervades uh, now in the Donald Trump era. It's on all politics. Before, it used to be just foreign policy where you worry about the misstatements, right? Uh, but uh, not just misstatements, lies. But uh, yeah, though that's kind of how I think about uh, politics, like the warped, muddled, confused uh <laughs> schizophrenic way in which i approach these uh, uh topics um yeah so i guess in general is just um modern be fo- focus on human rights and uh the situations in uh countries we usually don't care about before horrible things happen and then we're forced to uh come up with these uh yeah we're forced into these no-win situations um Yeah. Yeah, thank you for listening again. Take care.